A person's last words can be significant. Money can't buy life. Apparently those are the last words of the singer Bob Marley. Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor, is reported to have said as he died, have I played the part well? Then applaud me as I exit. Some last words can be completely flippant. A convicted murderer called James Rogers was put in front of a firing squad and asked if he had a last request. He said, bring me a bulletproof vest. What about the last words from the actor Humphrey Bogart? I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Some last words can be haunting. The last thing James Brown said was, I'm going away tonight. Sometimes people in positions of power get to choose their last official words. A moment ago I mentioned the last words of Augustus Caesar. He spoke those to his close friends at his bedside. But his official last words went out to his subjects in the Roman Empire. I found Rome of clay. I leave it to you of marble. We find something similar happening with King David in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 2 records David's actual last words, spoken to his son Solomon at his bedside. But 2 Samuel chapter 23 gives us David's last official words, his final public statement. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We are at the moment in the epilogue of 2 Samuel. Chapters 21 to 24 give us an overall picture of David's reign. They show us what we're to take away from all the things we've read about his life and his kingdom. Last week we looked at the king's song, a poem with three themes, deliverance, purity, and purpose. And we saw that song of the king was not so much about what David had done, it outlined what God had done. God delivered David from his enemies. God purified David from his sin. In spite of all he'd done, David could stand before God blameless because God took away David's sin. Amazingly, God made David whiter than snow. And God delivered and purified David for a purpose. He armed David with strength to overcome Israel's enemies, to protect and extend God's kingdom. That was chapter 22. And this morning we come to another poem by David. This one is much shorter. And it comes to us in the form of an official statement. David's last words for the record. You'll find... 2 Samuel 23 on page 330 or 508 in the large print Bibles.
And we're going to read just verses 1 to 7. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob. The hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of the Lord, he is like the light of morning at sunrise, on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house was not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. This is God's word. In the previous chapter, David's song was his reflection as he looked back over his life. And here, these last words of David start in a similar way. God's anointed ruler looks back. In verse 1, the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. David draws attention here to his background. He's the son of Jesse. We don't know anything about Jesse, except that he came from Bethlehem, a little town in the back end of nowhere. David had an unremarkable background. It was very different with Israel's first king, Saul. Saul's father was a man named Kish. And we do know about him. First Samuel told us he was a man of standing. He was a powerful man. An aristocrat in Israel. But David's family had no credentials like that. And David, you'll notice, is happy to admit it. He says, remember Israel, I'm Jesse's son. Jesse, who you'd never heard of till I became king. David acknowledges he didn't come from anything special. He is where he is because he has been exalted by the Most High. Some translations say exalted on high. Either way, the point is just the same. The one who exalted David on high is God Most High. David had no claim to greatness. And he didn't climb to greatness by his own power. God plucked David out of obscurity and put him on the throne. And so David says, yes, I am the hero of Israel's songs. Everybody knows the biggest song in Israel was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Even the Philistines knew that song. 
Most of you had it played at your weddings for the first dance. But, David says, anything I achieved was because I was anointed by the God of Jacob. And that title for God makes a connection that goes way back, back to the very founding of Israel. The book of Genesis tells us God chose just one man, Abraham. And God promised not only to make his descendants into a great nation, God also said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was God's promise. And then just one generation on, there was a choice to be made. Abraham's son Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, and he was the strongest. By human calculations, God's promise should have come through Esau's line. But God chose Jacob, who really wasn't an impressive character. And yet God applied the promise to Abraham to Jacob's line. God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. And kings will be among your descendants. So here in our passage, when David says he was anointed by the God of Jacob, it's not just a throwaway comment. There are no throwaway comments in these last words. David mentions Jacob to remind Israel God is working to a plan here. The things he does might baffle you and me most of the time, but he is steadily unfolding his purposes. Hundreds of years ago, God promised Jacob kings would be among his descendants. And David says, here I am. An unlikely king, but a king anointed and exalted by the God of Jacob. David says, here I am, a link in the chain of God's eternal purposes. So in just a few words, David has pointed to his own lack of credentials and also to the honor given him by God. David is just the son of Jesse, and yet he has been exalted by the God of Jacob. There's a lot you and I can learn from David's perspective here. Sometimes you and I can be a wee bit too sure of ourselves. We forget where we've come from. We forget sometimes that God plucked us not just out of obscurity, but out of transgressions and sins. When God received us, that's all you and I brought to the table. Just rags, no riches. We mustn't forget where we came from. But there's an opposite danger. Sometimes we can focus so much on our humble, unworthy background, we fail to honor God for what he has done. We keep quiet about how he has exalted us, how he's lifted us out of the slimy pit, and given us royal robes to wear, a place in his family, a part to play in his eternal plans. 
So it's true, we are not to exalt ourselves. But let's glorify God because he has exalted us. There's no greater dignity than being able to say, I started with nothing. Nothing except sin. But now I serve the God of Jacob and the God of David. So if your head is low this morning, lift your head up. Lift it up because God has lifted you up. As God's anointed ruler looks back, he gives God glory. He does that by remembering he has been chosen for God's purposes. And as unlikely as it might seem sometimes, the same is true for you and me. These last words of David start then by looking back. But they continue with a look into the future. In verses 2 to 4, God's righteous ruler is announced. First in these verses, David tells us what the New Testament will later confirm for us. They tell us David was not only a king, he's also a prophet. The book of Acts says David was a prophet who spoke of the Messiah. And here, David's last words are not just a nice little reflection on his years in office. The main part of this message is a prophetic announcement about the future. In verse 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, So what comes next is not David's wishful thinking. This is not his bright idea. This is a message given to David by God. As we read that message in the rest of verses 3 and 4, we might think, well, it's just a proverb. It's some good advice for all rulers to heed. And that's how it comes across in the NIV. But in fact, this is not a general proverb at all. This is an announcement about a specific person. Literally, the second half of verse 3 reads, A ruler over man, a righteous one, a ruler in the fear of God. This is an announcement about a ruler. Now, it's certainly important that all rulers aim to rule righteously. And the way to do that is to rule in the fear of God. That's true. But this prophetic message is announcing one who will rule righteously in the fear of God. And we've seen David's rule showed glimmers of that at times. Chapter 8 told us, for a time at least, he did what was just and right for all his people. But this future ruler will do it always. He'll do it perfectly. And he will rule like this, not just over Israel, but over man, meaning mankind, humanity. His rule will be perfectly righteous because he will be perfectly righteous. 
His righteous character will be seen in his righteous work. And his character and work will be righteous because he is perfectly submitted to God's authority. That's what it means to fear God. It's not about shaking in your boots before God. Fearing God is about submitting to God's will. This future ruler will do everything in line with God's will. And it is almost impossible for us to imagine what that will be like. You and I have never lived under that kind of perfectly righteous authority. No other ruler has ever displayed it. It's beyond our imagination. But look how verse 4 describes the rule of this righteous ruler. He is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Picture this in your head. It is a picture for us. A brilliant sunrise with no clouds to obscure it. And alongside that, the radiance whenever rain gives way to sunshine. The moisture still hanging on the grass to catch the sun and reflect it in all directions. That picture of what we know gives us a sense here of what we don't know. Life under the perfect rule of a perfect ruler. And the point is, his rule is not going to crush life. It will cause life to flourish. He brings life out of death. He's the source of life. His reign will revive and refresh and renew. There will be no darkness in his reign. He brings light out of darkness. He's the light of the world. And there are links here to the account of creation back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The words here connect us back to that. The rule of this ruler will be as fresh as a new creation. In fact, it will be a new creation. And in case we wonder who this righteous ruler might be, the New Testament tells us it's Jesus Christ. He called himself the light of the world. In 2 Peter, he's called the morning star. In Revelation, the bright morning star. When we come to him, we experience his new creating power. He brings us a peace that endures, even through the worst that hits us in this life. And to live under his authority is to have rest in our souls. The people who came to hear Jesus were farming people. And Jesus explained his rule to them often in farming terms. In that context, in order for oxen to be effective, they had to accept a yoke. 
It was a harness that allowed the farmer to guide them. And Jesus described his rule using this idea of a yoke. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How do we find true rest and peace? We place ourselves under Jesus' authority. We take his yoke. And when we do, we discover it is not slavery to be under his authority. It's freedom. The Apostle John says his commands are not burdensome. You and I live in a culture that tells us authority is a bad thing. At least any authority other than our own is a bad thing. The message is, follow what your heart tells you. Go where your hormones lead you. And don't ever let anyone tell you you're making a mistake. Parents don't like to bring their kids under authority. They're afraid to tell their kids some of the things they want wouldn't actually be good for them. Parents are afraid to exercise authority in case somehow it might cause their kids to suffer, in case it might damage them. And in all fairness, history has given us plenty of reasons to distrust human authority. Humans have a long track record of abusing authority. But the answer to that is not to turn our back on all authority. You and I were not created to be king or queen of our own life. We cannot thrive when we try to put ourselves in that position. The answer to our authority problem is not to reject all authority. It's to come under the authority of this ruler described in 2 Samuel 23. This ruler who turns out to be Jesus Christ. We find rest and peace and true life by coming under his yoke. His rule doesn't bring oppression. It brings renewal and freedom. And that can begin for us today with renewed hearts. Lives that are free from sin's slavery. And in the future... This righteous rule of Christ is going to swell until it includes not just spiritually new men and women, but a physically new heaven and earth. The New Testament describes it as the home of righteousness. David had the privilege of announcing God's righteous ruler. David was looking forward as a prophet. You and I can know this ruler for ourselves. His name is Jesus, and he's the source of light, life, and renewal.
Just like he's pictured here in these verses. So if you don't know him, come to him and find life. If you do know him, look to him for all that you need. Well, how can we be sure about this? David's answer is that God's promise makes the future sure. Look at verse 5. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secure in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. Notice, David is not talking initially about himself here. He's talking about his house, meaning his dynasty, his descendants. And David's point is, I'm confident about the future of my house because God made a promise about the future of my house. He made an everlasting covenant with me. A covenant arranged and secured in every part. That's legal language. David's saying the covenant God made is airtight. It's all in order. There are no loose ends. There are no get-out clauses. God has fully committed himself. The covenant David is referring to was recorded back in chapter 7. You may remember at a certain point in his life, David had the bright idea of building a house for God, meaning a temple. But on that occasion, God said, no, David, it's a nice idea, but no, I'm going to build a house for you, meaning a dynasty. And God said it would be a unique dynasty. It would never end. One of David's descendants would rule over an eternal kingdom. And here, after announcing God's righteous rule in verses 2 to 4, now David says, I'm sure about this prophecy God gave me because of the earlier promise he gave me. This righteous ruler is going to be the fulfillment of God's promise. And David says, this future ruler will bring about my salvation. He will satisfy my every desire. Now we probably want to ask, how much did David know about this righteous ruler? Did David know he would come from Nazareth? That his name would be Jesus, that he'd have a mother called Mary, an earthly father called Joseph, that he'd work as a carpenter? Did David know all that? I doubt it. David doesn't know many specifics about God's king. But he has a sense of what his rule will be like. It will be like sunshine after rain. Life-giving sunshine. It will be an everlasting rain. David knew that much. And he knew this king would bring about David's own salvation. He would satisfy David's every desire. Somehow David knew animal sacrifices couldn't pay for his sin. His salvation depended on this future ruler. And somehow David knew his desires could not be satisfied in this present world. 
Satisfaction would come under the rule of this righteous ruler. And in this sense, David is just like all God's faithful people in the Old Testament. They didn't have Jesus, but they had the promise of Jesus. Their faith was in God's promise. They trusted in the Savior who would come. The New Testament book of Hebrews says this about them. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. God's promise was enough for his Old Testament people. They trusted that God's promise makes the future sure. And the New Testament says, you and I are called to the same faith in God's promise. Now we have much more clarity than David did or Abraham or Moses. We can look back on Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But when it comes to the future reign of King Jesus, his eternal kingdom, the home of righteousness, we have to trust God's promise for those things. We have to live by faith in God's promise, just like David. And that's why the New Testament also calls us foreigners and strangers on earth. We do not yet have all God has promised. But his promise is enough. We can look ahead to the things promised and we can welcome them from a distance. Sometimes people listen to all this and they respond by saying, well, I admit that's nice. And I'm very glad for you if you believe it, but it's just not for me. Sometimes people talk about the promise of God as if it only counts for the people who accept it. But the trouble is, God's promise makes the future sure for everyone. For those who believe the promise and trust the king, there will be salvation and satisfaction and a place in the kingdom. But that also means those who despise the promise or even just ignore the promise, they will not be saved or satisfied or have a place in the kingdom. If this ruler is coming, it's bad news for those who will not accept him. The kingdom has boundaries. Those who won't accept the king won't be in the kingdom. That's what David says in verses 6 and 7. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron, or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. In verse 6, evil men is literally worthless men. 
It means people who are a law unto themselves or who try to be a law unto themselves. They don't want the yoke of God's king. They shrug off Jesus' authority. And so they are like thorns. They stand in the way of Jesus' new creation work. They're like thorns choking the grass pictured for us in verse 4. And the message is, just like thorns stand in the way of a gardener and the good work he does, so these people will be dealt with like thorns. They will be dealt with with a rod of iron. And they will be cast aside like thorns and destroyed like thorns. David, we've seen, is speaking here as a prophet. And we might wonder what Jesus himself thought about David's prophecy in these last couple of verses. Did David get it right? Would Jesus really exclude and punish his enemies like this? Would he actually weed out and destroy those who stand in the way of his kingdom? It turns out David got it exactly right. Jesus himself chose to describe his work like the work of a farmer gathering a harvest. This is what he said. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jesus not only saw his work the same way David saw it, Jesus actually took up and used David's words. Both the words of life and the words of destruction. God's promise makes the future sure. And that means we need to consider our future. Will we shine like the sun? In the kingdom of light and life? Or will we be weeded out and cast aside to make way for the kingdom? It all depends on how we respond to this good news of the kingdom. There is a king who saves and satisfies. There is a king who brings life in all of its fullness. Thank God we don't have to earn our way into this kingdom. He welcomes all who come humbly, trusting in God's promise. We're counted righteous when we come under the rule of his king. David's last words are not here to condemn us. 
They're here to give us hope for the future. All of us need to respond to these words with repentance and then with praise. And we're going to respond now together to these words. We'll begin by looking back, as David does, to what God has done for us, and then we will look forward to what he has promised to do. Let's sing, all my days I will sing this song of gladness.